Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome, I'm Emily Contois, an assistant professor of media studies, and I research food, health, and identity in U.S. consumer culture. Today, I'm happy to chat with my colleague and friend, Dr. Andrew Ruiz, about his book, Eating to Learn, Learning to Eat, The Origins of School Lunch in the United States, which came out in July 2017 with Rutgers University Press. Andrew is a historian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I was lucky to meet him a few years ago at a uh, AAHM History of Medicine conference where we debated um, the the utility of food studies and what it had to offer. And so we've uh, been able to have lots of difficult conversations together um, and to find a really interesting intersection uh, where food history, nutrition history, and food studies meet. So I'm really excited to talk with you today, Andrew. I'm uh, really excited about this opportunity. Fantastic. Well, let's start with how you came to this project. What got you interested in school lunch? Well, so the, the thing that really got me uh, uh, working on this project is that uh, when I thought about school meal programs, uh, at a fundamental level, they're public health programs. And they emerged in the U.S. in response to growing concerns about the health and well-being of poor children. Uh, the National School Lunch Program, which began in 1947 and continues today, is the longest-running public health program for children in U.S. history. But when I began work on this project, you know, about 10 years ago, historians of medicine and public health were paying very little attention to issues of food, diet, and nutrition. And school meals, though they have become a somewhat mundane feature of modern schooling, are extraordinarily complex systems. I knew that at some point in the past, they were revolutionary, and I wanted to know more about how they became an integral part of so many children's lives. And I think a lot of that comes back to the title of your book, Eating to Learn, Learning to Eat. How did you come to this pithy summation of the origins of school lunch programs? So when I started uh, looking into the history of school meal programs, uh, I realized that they actually were generated in part because so many teachers recognized that hungry and malnourished children in their classrooms couldn't fully benefit from schooling. Um, they also connected many of the problems exhibited by, by school children, attentiveness, and misbehavior, poor academic performance, lethargy, and that kind of thing, uh, to a lack of sufficient or sufficiently nourishing food. Uh, so in that sense, early meal programs were feeding children so that they could learn. But most advocates also recognized supplemental feeding without nutrition education and coordinated health and social work and other measures was at best abandoned because children needed to eat well outside of school as well. Like most kids only eat about a third of their meals in school, but the rest of it they're, they're eating at home or somewhere else. Yes, they're eating them. Um, so that it wasn't enough for students to eat to learn. They also had to learn how to eat so that they would develop and maintain good nutrition uh, well after leaving school or when they weren't uh, working in class. 
And so these school lunch programs um, emerge on a national level, as you said, you know, in the 1940s. Um, but what I love about your history is how it's earlier than that, right? It's in the decades before that program exists. And there's this really rich detail that you give of these local stories. And so you've calculated that by 1913, at least 46 cities already operated regular lunch programs in at least some of their schools. But figuring that out, those 46, 46 programs, um, that, that must have required an extensive research project. Um, can you tell us about your archival work? What did you have to undertake to be able to tell this complex set of local histories? Yeah, this was actually very challenging uh, research to conduct. Um, and that was uh, in part of the fact that no early meal program kept consistent records. Um, and part of it was due to the fact that what records were kept were often scattered, destroyed, or lost. Uh, so uh, school board and superintendent reports, uh, you know, provided something of a backbone. Uh, right? So that, that, was, that was at least that um, layer of officialdom in many, in many cases. Um, to some extent, local newspapers would uh, would cover, uh, you know, things, but it was mostly anecdotal, right? You wouldn't get necessarily a consistent series of articles. You'd get sort of one-off uh, articles here and there. Um, and some private organizations like women's clubs and philanthropic groups um, uh, and others who were involved in helping to start the uh, lunch programs in the first place did keep their own records as well. Um, but the, the overall process of researching for this book was very much one of collecting sort of disparate pebbles um, from which I might be able to build a small hill. Uh, you know, the, um, the book was really shaped by what I could find. Um, I was lucky in that New York City and Chicago both had fairly good records, and those two cities, which were the two largest school districts in the country in the time period that I was writing uh, in, um, happened to provide excellent contrast and approaches and concerns. Um, and so I, I was actually just sort of lucky in that sense. That, you know, what made for a good history of the story was also uh, relatively well documented. Um, although even in both of those cases, there were fairly sizable holes in, in, the, in the coverage, and I had to try and kind of figure out what was going on from bits and pieces scattered around. Um, and for example, I, you know, I really wanted to write about Southern meal programs, given how important the Southern states were in the passing of the National Food Lunch Act. Um, but I just couldn't find enough material to build a case study around uh, any particular southern city or even state. Um, you know, time and again, I would contact uh, an archive or visit a collection only to find that their earliest school lunch material dated to the mid or late 30s, um, which was far too late for understanding how those programs uh, began. Um, and I should note, too, that, uh, you know, the work for a book like this, basically I couldn't have done uh, in an earlier era. Like, I was extremely reliant on the digitization of, for example, a lot of local newspapers and um, digital finding aids because this is the kind of source material that's just not collected in one place. And even within a given state or even within a given city, a lot of times the resources that I needed were sort of scattered across different, you know, public libraries and university libraries and city or state historical societies and things like that. So it was, it was a lot of work to take all of those bits and pieces and kind of stitch them together into, into a kind of coherent history. 
Oh, I think it's really important to reflect on those methodological challenges of what we find in the archive and what we don't. Um, and then methodologically with your text as well, that you're working at this really interesting multidisciplinary intersection that I kind of alluded to at the very beginning um, of where the histories of medicine and nutrition meet food studies and food history. And I think your book shines really well in this space and that it's examining hallmark challenges of public health and social medicine of um, more national uh, regulatory programs that um, intervene in interesting ways with individual health and needs. Um, and food studies and food history folks will love this book for its historical assessment of school lunch programs and policies in an earlier period than had really been documented, um, but also for the culinary and gastronomic details that you include. Uh, one of my favorite chapters um, is on the lunch programs in rural one-room schoolhouses in the upper Midwest. Um, you write of things like beans cooked on an outdoor stove, potatoes baked in the ash pan um, of the sole indoor of a stove that heated the school, um, and meals heated up via the pint jar method, uh, which is when individual servings pl are placed in jars in a rack and heated on the stove in a boiler with just a little bit of water. So how do you think about the intersections of the histories of medicine, nutrition, with fields like food studies and food history in this particular book and in your ongoing research agenda? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I was trained in the historian of medicine and, and worked mostly on the history of children's health and, and pediatrics. Um, but this book benefited substantially from work in food studies and history, particularly work on immigrant food culture and um, and changes in American food case from the late 19th century to the sort of Second World War. There was, uh, you know, for anybody who does work in, in food history, that was a pretty, pretty seminal period, right? We see the sort of the rise of restaurant culture and, and, you know, the emergence of sort of fast foods uh, at a large scale, uh, you know, as a result of industrialization and urbanization. And of course, the lunch programs emerge at this, at this time period. So there's, there's actually like a rich, History there that I was able to I was able to draw on to, to help set some of the, the, the background for for, for uh, how school lunches are, are emerging. Um, but I've always been surprised uh, by how little overlap there is between the history of medicine and the history of food, diet, and nutrition. Um, that's starting to change, of course, thanks in large part to uh, to work that both uh, uh, well, you and I have been doing, but also a number of our colleagues who have really been uh, starting to. Uh, uh, you know, uh, do history of medicine that takes food and nutrition much more seriously, and then scholars who are talking about, you know, food studies and history of food backgrounds are starting to uh, think much more critically about issues of medicine and public health. Uh, uh, but I think there are a few uh, kind of key areas where a lot more work can be done um, at that intersection. Um, you know, one is, uh, is in the area of the histories of understanding the nutrition or what it meant. Uh, for food or diet or cooking techniques or, or so on and so forth to be helpful. Um, that's a great place where sort of uh, cultural histories of food um, and social histories of food um, and diet uh, intersect really interestingly with like medical theory and the intellectual history of medicine and also uh, social histories of medicine and public health and, and practice. Uh, uh, another area I think where, uh, you know, some there could be some more fruitful overlap between uh, these fields um, uh, is in sort of uh, thinking about the kind of rise of big food, big pharma, and big science, all of which are sort of happening uh, in the post-war era. 
um, I think there's a lot of places where uh, those things productively interact and, and even and even overlap. You know, fields like Chemergy, for example, are using uh, uh, using uh, agricultural products to produce things that aren't food, like turning food into fuel ethanol and things like that, were major developments in, in the, the middle and, and late 20th century that, that haven't really received a whole lot of scholarly attention. Um, so I think there's there's definitely some really interesting places where the fields intersect, where a lot more work could be done. Uh, I think, and I think this is especially true when we think about uh, uh, children's health and, and the history of uh, childhood, because so much of pediatric practice and public health nutrition, uh, sorry, public health, uh, children's public health, um, really revolved around. Uh, ideas about diet and nutrition, um, which, you know, particularly starting in the, in the, um, late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, although it had been there for, for a long time. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot more, uh, interest in research on, uh, the relationship that children have with food and, and children's food cultures and that kind of thing. And, and these are very hard to research, but again, I think another, um, place where there could be really productive interactions between these fields. No, I completely agree. And that leads so well to one of the points that you make about the complex nature of nutrition as a set of knowledges, um, which you, so you argue that nutrition science is a fundamentally social process, which I think is a really important point. Um, that nutrition's rooted in, as you were talking about earlier, these variable understandings um, of not only which foods are healthful or not, but what constitutes a meal, um, how foods should be prepared consumed, and even what counts as food. Um, and so in thinking through those questions, um, one of my favorite quotes from the book is um, that these aren't empirical questions to be answered in labs or clinics, but they're social questions continually addressed through the combination of scientific, cultural, and political, but also historical processes. Um, so how do these um, more complex understandings of nutrition and the set of knowledges that go along with it that are socially constructed and deeply historical um, guide your work. And how do you hope such a perspective might shape other scholarship related to nutrition? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, so one of the things that I realized as I was researching and writing this book was that Basically, at no point in the period that I'm writing about, in you know, roughly the first half of the 20th century, and I think this is probably true uh, up to the present, um, uh, you know, was there a stable or consistent sense of what it meant to be well-nourished, right? If you asked any two experts, you would get two different answers about what it meant for a child in particular, or really anybody, to be considered well-nourished. Nutrition is this extraordinarily complex uh, science. Um, and it's a very uh, sort of challenging field in which to do research. Right? If, you, if you look just from a clinical standpoint, right, it's, it's relatively straightforward to figure out, you know, uh, uh, what things might be essential for life. But it's very, very difficult to figure out what's optimal, or even what, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit more than just essential, right? Even if it's not totally optimal, um, that research is so hard to do, and as, you know, became more and more clear as I did the research on this project, right, even those answers are deeply embedded in social and cultural understandings about food and food preparation and diet and all of these, uh, all of these things that make up sort of 
how we decide what and when and how to eat foods. Um, at the same time, though, like in in the the period that I'm you know researching for this book or that I write about in this book, um, you know, people like teachers, people like social workers, uh, to some extent, you know, parents and 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 certainly uh, medical professionals who begin working in schools. They saw hungry and malnourished kids on a, on a daily basis, and they had no doubt about the sort of presence of serious nutritional problems. Um, so, sort of on one hand, you have this undeniable experiential evidence that a lot of kids need more and better food. But on the other hand, it's virtually impossible to define with any precision how such kids should be identified and what the best way to solve the problem is, right? And we still struggle with this today. We have all of these different approaches to dealing with things like childhood diabetes or childhood obesity or hunger. And we don't necessarily know exactly how each one contributes to uh, overall improvement of those situations. Um, but it's the discussion of those problems and the solutions that really reveal how people think about food and nutrition and health and those Discussions happen in both professional circles, like in medical journals and, and scientific conferences and that kind of thing, but they also happen in places like school. They happen in newspapers and in public venues. Um, and I think a lot of the best work on the history of nutrition um, and history of food more generally really engages with both, both sides, essentially. It takes into account how professional scientists and physicians and health workers kind of figure out these problems that they they don't do so by ignoring how uh, individual people sort of wrestle with the kind of social and cultural roles that, that food and diet play in their lives. Oh, and so I know you and I are both really drawn to those questions about meaning, right? Of what's healthy, of what people think good food is at different moments. Um, but what another thing you write about so convincingly is the book are these like practical and logistical challenges um, that school food has to wrestle with um, of how to provide nutritious food um, that's also tasty that children will eat and enjoy alongside the fiscal restraints and kinks and supply chain that a lot of these programs faced um, and continue to face. Um, so how do you situate school food historically and maybe now as well within this broader foodscape and these systemic issues and problems? Yeah, so I, mean, I, I thought that was actually one of the really fascinating things when I was doing this project because it, it sort of is like, uh, just to borrow another food metaphor, right? it's like learning how the sausage gets made, right? Like, but there's all of this machinery that you need infrastructure that you need to do something like a school lunch program and it doesn't you know it doesn't exist before uh, all of these uh, schools or, or districts or, or even cities start to like actually try and figure out how, how you can do um, so school meals are developing you know at about the same time as many other innovations in the history of food including things like lunch carts and commercial canning and uh, you know, pre-prepared meals that can be just, you know, uh, easily disseminated or, or reheated and things like that. Um, and in large part, it's because all those innovations are responsive to larger social forces. So industrialization is leading to large numbers of workers who need to eat a midday meal away from home, which necessitates a whole new way of thinking about what, where, and how to buy, prepare, and eat food. And yet food is also deeply personal and cultural. There are a few choices so difficult to regulate as the choice of what to ingest. That goes for children as well. 
So school meal programs were, and really still are, often in competition with other dining options, right? You, you know, you can't tell a kid that they can't eat the food that their parents prepare for them, for example. And, uh, and on top of that, you know, for businesses, selling food to kids is enormously lucrative, and it, and it still is, right? It's a, uh, it's a very, very uh, lucrative market, and it's something like... Um, uh, you know, I just interviewed for a piece on Lunchables. And Lunchables were originally envisioned as this, this product for workers, right? Who were these, for these sort of busy, hairy people. And they, and they transitioned it into a product for kids because it turned out to be, I mean, a more lucrative market, right? To, to, to market it to, to, uh, busy and stressed parents, uh, for, for their kids. So some of the solutions for their kids. Um, and so there's this huge, uh, sort of competitive, Space in which school lunches have to kind of shoot one that their way in, um, and to do that requires a lot of um, um, overcoming a lot of different challenges. Like where did where did the food come from, and who's going to prepare it, and how do you distribute it to the kids, and what how and most importantly, how do you fund all of that work, and how are you going to ensure that it's actually nutritious, and how are you going to ensure that it meets the the various needs of those children, and does it meet their cultural needs, or if they have religious or ethnic restrictions, does it need those? Is it something that they're going to find appetizing and flavorful? Is it something that they're going to eat or are they just going to throw it away even if you give it to them for free and that kind of thing? And, and these are, are extremely complex problems and they're ones that we're still wrestling with today. Absolutely. So I wanted us to think about school food in the contemporary context because it definitely continues to be a hot topic um, and so often framed as a food fight um, when it's covered and that it involves so many stakeholders and that these are really tricky problems that we've been um, struggling to find solutions for. Um, and so one um, that was written about a lot last year that I love to get your historically formed take on um, is this problem of um, lunch shaming. Um, this idea that when um, a child hasn't paid their lunch bill, that they're given an alternative lunch, like a cheese sandwich, that they're not allowed to participate in the normal school lunch program. Um, and there was a 2014 report from the Department of Agriculture that found that such practices are really widespread and they're a common practice in nearly half of all school districts across the country. And so from your research, on school lunch programs um, in this earlier period, but in a lot of diverse settings, um, are there historical precedents for these sorts of practices or um, the thinking that lies beneath them? Yeah, so I, I think the key thing that, that uh, uh, is important to think about um, in this context, um, you know, and of course, you know, lunch shaming is an appalling practice. It's hard to imagine how anybody could see this as something that, that you you should or could do to a child, but, but even setting aside sort of the ethical uh, issues, um, this is very much something that only makes sense in the context of a capitalist mm-hmm. uh, lunch system. And since the inception of school lunches, most of them have been, uh, most of the programs that have been developed in this country have been very wedded to this idea of school lunch being fundamentally capitalist, meaning that there is an exchange of money for for food, right? And that comes in part out of this progressive era concerns about socialism and socializing uh, too many aspects of, of American life. This is a, a time period when, uh, you know, both local and federal governments are, are taking on a lot more, uh, a lot more power uh, 
um, but also a time when uh, a lot more uh, programs are being developed that operate at sort of the, the, the social levels, uh, schooling itself being one of them, of course. And um, from the, the beginning, school lunch programs have, uh, you know, whether they were philanthropic in nature or whether they were, uh, you know, sort of uh, strictly uh, uh, commercial, have always had as this undercurrent, this idea that they should be basically capitalist, like kids who could afford to buy lunch should do so. And then even kids who couldn't afford it and thus were receiving therapy uh, should uh, sort of model the capitalistic stage. So, for example, a lot of schools, uh, even in the early 20th century, used a ticket or a token system where if you could afford it, you would buy a token or, or a lunch ticket, and if you couldn't, you would have one given to you. But when you go through the lunch line, you would exchange your ticket or your token for your meal. It, ostensibly, that would, would um, uh, you know, uh, obfuscate who, which kids were receiving their meals as charity and which ones were uh, simply paying for them. Of course, as today, I think almost always kids kids always know, right? Like they, that's not an easy thing to hide. But, but on the surface, what it, what it meant was that regardless of whether you were uh, receiving a charitable donation or whether you were buying your meal, that that model of paying for it, of, a, of an exchange of money for, for goods, uh, was completely baked into the program. And this was very different from the kind of lunch programs that were um, that were developed uh, in Europe, uh, where there was much less concern about uh, sort of this thing like popularization or, or sort of socialization um, kinds of programs. And so lunch shaming today really it, it sort of grows out of that kind of capitalist lunch program tradition, this idea that, you know, that you owe money, you owe, you, 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 you incur debts for these lunches if you don't, you haven't paid for them yet, and that if you haven't paid those debts after some period of time, there should be some punishment, right? Of course, why if the children should be punished, you know, is, 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 is not really uh, is not really addressed. But even the idea that there should be a punishment at all is very much rooted in that capitalist model. Um, and so that's, uh, that's uh, um, uh, sort of key uh, um, uh, backdrop for understanding, uh, you know, uh, the lunch shaming, but also, uh, you know, importantly, there have been a lot of, of states that have passed legislation specifically to prohibit those uh, those practices uh, because they, they really are important. Uh, so I think legislation to prevent those sorts of practices is one way to move forward. Um, and then there are um, a number of scholars and advocates um, promoting this idea of universal lunch programs, right? The idea that every child who came to school would be provided a lunch. Um, and so last year, in 2017, um, New York City announced, right, that they would have a universal lunch program for the more than million, one million children in their public schools. And so given the research that you've done on all these early school lunch programs, um, particularly in New York City, um, how do you think those early reformers would react to these developments? And what historical lessons are there for officials in New York City and in other cities who are um, considering or working um, to expand their school lunch program towards a universal model? Yeah, and, and uh, the sort of uh, extension 
version of the idea, you know, that's so free meal is one that is, I think, really fascinating. And, you know, I, I, it happened just a little too late for me to really address uh, in the book. Um, but I think it's actually one of those really interesting cases in policy where something that's actually um, primarily motivated by logistics and sort of practicalities has this tremendous social benefit. So a big motivator behind the universal free meals approach is that uh, sort of prior to the passage of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, any child who wanted to qualify for free or reduced price meals had to do so individually, which is a huge burden on uh, districts, for example, to then basically determine at an individual level which children qualify for which kinds of meals and, and that sort of thing. And what the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act does is it basically establishes this idea of community eligibility, where like if enough kids in your district or in your school would qualify individually, then the whole school should qualify, which is basically a paperwork deduction measure, right? And, and so then there are a number of cities that are extending that even further, like New York City and others, and just saying, look, forget about even if, you know, uh, 70% of the students at uh, a given school or in a given district would qualify. Let's just extend that you know, city-wide, let's just say everybody qualifies, um, it's a huge reduction in, in the sort of logistical overhead of running a program like this, but it also has this benefit of being much, much better for the kids that you're trying to help, right? So it's sort of a win-win. It's one of those cases where, you know, the kind of the needs of, of uh, the sort of financial and logistical needs of the people that run the programs and the needs of children actually align really nicely. Um, and I think there's also been, you know, a lot of public support for this kind of, of approach. People have always been very, very supportive of the idea of school meals, and they've particularly been supportive of the idea of school uh, meals that supports uh, poor children, right, that feed kids who otherwise might go hungry. Um, and this is a way of, of, of really doing that, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, it's sort of in alignment with the kinds of things that, that people generally want. Um, and this is actually not a, a, a new idea, right? A, 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 one of the interesting things about the history of school lunches is that most of the reformers who were pushing for these kinds of programs in the early 20th century, uh, even starting in the late 19th century, is that this is exactly what they wanted from the beginning. They wanted programs that were really comprehensive, right? That they, they wanted programs that fed poor kids. <laughs> They wanted uh, programs that were uh, free and generally accessible, and they also wanted them to be well integrated into all their social and school-based measures. Right? They didn't want just a feeding program. They wanted a feeding program that also included educational components and social work and health work and a whole bunch of other things that would really actually improve children's lives. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, you know, what's been happening recently in school lunches is sort of an attempt to revive a lot of those goals that reformers began with in the first place when when school lunches were, were first being created. Um, and so, it's actually as a historian kind of uh, really kind of cool to see like this thing that you've been you know reading about and researching about and whatever you know from 120, 130 years ago actually starting to come to fruition now. It's like, you know, the things that my great-great-great-grandparents might have, you know, advocated for, you know, are in now, in my lifetime, you know, starting to happen. I mean, it's a small measure. Um, 
And so I think that's actually, uh, uh, I just, well, you know, one of the really cool things about doing work in history is that, you know, sometimes you get to actually see all this work that, that you know, may not have paid off in the lifetime of the historical actors, but that doesn't mean that it didn't eventually pay off. I don't know, I'm reaping some of those benefits now. Oh, well, I think that's such a, a hopeful and satisfying note for us to be able to end our conversation on your great book, Andrew. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thanks, Emily. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. It's, it's, it's always fun as an author to uh, uh, get to talk a little bit about your process or about the things that you got excited about. And we get to talk about those things that didn't make it into the book. And so I really appreciate having this opportunity. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to do this with me. No, of course. I'm sure listeners will enjoy it as well. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.